thinking about the future has me like I feel myself bracing and I don't know what you know literally what I'm bracing against and bracing for there there is such a sense of like we gotta we gotta dig in for for what the future is because it's coming and it's it's gonna be it's gonna be brutal when it does I think it just creates this kind of like backdrop of anxiety. It's sort of like hu- it's more of a humdrum. Sometimes it becomes more prominent when a new piece of news breaks out, and uh, your friends might text you and be like, "Hey, you're like, so kind of in deep trouble." And then, and then you have a conversation, but after that, you go back to your life because so far you can still manage it. So my name is Canon Hewitt. I'm a half Japanese, half American artist currently living and studying and、uh, working on the unceded Coast Salish territories that we call Vancouver. And I go to、uh, UBC University of British Columbia for theater. I'm Chris Yuan. I'm a Singaporean theater maker. Who is studying in Vancouver, UBC? Crystal Smith, why you could get the Hohaku, Vigurita Otsagu, Gispaguara de Pitiku, Toyetism, Squat Amish, Masquiam, Tewatooth. So the language I just spoke in is Samaliach, and it's the language of the Simchian people of northern British Columbia. And I said that my name is Crystal Smith, that I'm from Gagat, which is also known as Hartley Bay, and I live now in what is colonially known as Vancouver. And I said thank you to the Coast Salish Nations for allowing us to be here on their territory, for allowing me to be here on their territory. Being part of this generation just means that I have to work extra hard so that my children don't have to suffer the consequences of this global warming. So, fighting the pipelines, fighting Site C Dam, things that will create like this catastrophic atmosphere in which my children or my great grandchildren and their children will suffer. So it's my job. To make sure that they don't suffer, that they get the land just as I have it, if not better. Friends, welcome to the Big Bright Dark podcast. My name is Olive Dempsey, and as always, I am so grateful that you've decided to join us on another adventure 
where we do our little bit to untangle some small part of what it means to be making our way on this changing planet. We're going to start this episode way back in 1988 on June 23rd, to be specific. So let's just pause here for a minute. Anyone remember where you were on June 23rd, 1988? If, in fact, you were here at all yet? For me, I was a nine-year-old celebrating the first few days of summer holiday. I was at an age where the span of time between June and September was inconceivably long. The start of grade six seemed like a reality that I could kind of understand in theory, but couldn't quite bring myself to actually worry about. It might be a little bit like how some folks feel about the climate crisis today. Fortunately for all of us, James Hansen was thinking about the future on June 23rd, 1988. And in fact, he was also thinking about climate change. Hansen was the director of NASA's Institute for Space Studies. And on this fateful day, he was testifying to a U.S. Congressional Committee about the dangers of global warming. He was telling them that, quote, Earth has been warmer in the first five months of this year than in any comparable period since measurements began 130 years ago, and the higher temperatures can now be attributed to a long-expected global warming trend linked to pollution, end quote. The editors of the New York Times wrote a front-page story with the headline that read, Global Warming Has Begun, Expert Tells Senate. So as I was working on the intro to this episode, I was aware that these headlines and this statement could just have easily have been written today, except they weren't. They were written all the way back in 1988. This is so long ago that I, as a person who now lives under the weight of most of the trappings of adulthood, was too young to understand a two-month time span. It was so long ago that the closest thing to a mobile device was the car phone that my grandfather used as a real estate agent. And, just so we're all aware of this, Rick Astley's song, Together Forever, was riding high on the Billboard Hot 100 number one singles. And the folks you'll hear from today, they were not even born yet. Crystal Smith, Cannon Hewitt, and Chris Ewan have grown up entirely within the era of the climate crisis. They're part of a group called Generation Hot, the name given to folks who were born after global warming became a household term. And, you know, often in environmental work, there's a lot of talk about future generations and how we need to act on behalf of them. Well, we think it's time to hear from those future beings because they're actually here with us right now. And they have some important things to say. In 2016, the theater company, The Only Animal, gathered a group of 10 writers and performers, all born after 1988, to tell their story of the climate crisis through a series of short theater productions called Generation Hot. We had the great privilege to speak with three of these artists about the future, about their anger, about the role of art at a time like this, and perhaps most importantly, their advice for folks of all generations. We'll see you on the other side. So this show that I did for Generation Hot 
was called umizoko, and it's a Japanese word that means basically the bottom of the ocean, the ocean floor. The piece was about a catastrophic event in an imagined future,、uh, but basically where, because of climate change, the ocean levels have risen a considerable amount, enough to drown coastal cities across the world. In addition to being about the climate, this piece was also、uh, a way for me to try to explore some of my aspects of identity that I'd only very recently begun thinking more more critically about as someone who is Japanese and mixed race. My piece was called Amber. It was the first play that I've written and I've directed and I produced. It's about a family in the near future. Facing sort of an、uh, almost apocalyptic situation, where it's hard to get the resources that they want, and it's it, it's a Chinese family, and they're sort of you know trying to、um, like negotiate between the things that they really want and that hold they hold dear as part of who they are,、um, as part of tradition and as part of identity and the. The current circumstances, which prevent them from getting simple things like fish, but which is so crucial to their life experience. The piece I produced is called "Saving Mother," and it was a piece that. Spoke to the interrelatedness between Indigenous women's bodies and the land, and the violence that's being inflicted on both. It uses、um, a story from the Cree people about Wendigo, and they say that、uh, Wendigo was a cannibal monster that roamed the northern forests、um, and attacked unsuspecting passerbys. But it was also told that. A person, a human, could become Wendigo under the right circumstances. When I first started learning about climate change, it was in probably in like very early elementary school, because by that time, you know, it was already a concern in the scientific community, was becoming a concern in the public mind as well. I think actually, I remember like even as a kid when I first started learning about climate change, I I think I distinctly felt this sense of like, why do we have to be the ones to bear this? My Climate change experience started from either like Discovery Channel、uh, or like science in science classes,、uh, where it's like where they try to explain the, the various processes. And I think it's just it's just a repetition of that same story. It's like oh, this is the natural process, but hey, humans have disrupted this natural process, and now we are kind of in a lot of trouble. 
So and then you just read a lot more articles as you as you become more tech savvy. You you read more articles. Oh, um, this number of species is going. Oh, um, carbon dioxide emissions or carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere is this high. Oh, we have crossed the threshold. Oh, um, like there's a lot of science to it as well. I chose the characters from each generation. So there's Amber, who's the daughter and uh, Gerald, the father, and then the grandmother, Wailing. Actually, I imagined that I was the grandmother, in a way, like, all the things that I was so comfortable with, all the things that, that I loved and, like, were very ubiquitous, very easy to get, and I imagined that what happens when I lose that. And then her son, the father, is someone who has grown up in the generation after and who inherits so much of this climate anxiety that his life kind of, he shapes his actions, he shapes his decisions around um, trying to salvage whatever that's left. And um, and I guess those are sort of like the two sides that I hear very often. And then Amber is just someone who has grown up in this new uh, situation where so many things are already gone. She doesn't know what she's missing. So she doesn't need to worry about all of that, in a sense. For her, on her, I put the hopes of the future, in a way. It's a strange place where she, she kind of has, she's a clean slate. So in a way, she can be, she can improve things or she can see things going so much worse. So I've been in, in university for seven years now, and I learned that Canada didn't want us to survive, that they didn't think the Indian Act would last this long because we would just be gone. And that's why they did so many documentations. That's why they sent out people to go survey the, the Indian people that are a dying race. And so understanding that and knowing that as a young person, it just, it was just who I was, how I was. Wendigo in my play was uh, a white man uh, looking for oil, like surveying for oil. But at the same time, he takes interest in a young child. And uh, she was then separated from her mother. Uh, which was the land and the mother of the child and her grandmother. So there's a separation that happens. And then Wendigo tries to entice her, tries to lure her in, in which he does succeed and uh, she becomes Wendigo as well. But in the moment that she's about to um, fully, fully become Wendigo, uh, in which she's hurting mother, she realizes what she's doing and she breaks apart and she pushes Wendigo away and uh, she becomes herself again and, and sings to Mother, the woman's warrior song. Indigenous people, we talk a lot about blood memory uh, and blood memory meaning that uh, not only can we feel the pain of the past but we can also feel the resilience, that the resilience is in our bodies, that we're born with it. And so I believe uh, in my play, that's what 
is shown that she has this resilience in her body that allows her to remember who she is. What I really wanted to do was make people uncomfortable because it was like only in, in being uncomfortable that um, you're propelled to, to change. You're propelled to do something. Um, and so I guess in the, there's two scenes in which mother is actually, uh, not literally, but um, is seen as she's being drilled into, um, in which oil comes up and you can see the oil. And the second one is actually when the child is doing it as well with Wendigo. And it's only about a minute and a half long of drilling. But in that, in that act of violence, like it's extreme act of violence to drill into someone's stomach, it, it seems like forever. And so that creates this uncomfortable feeling in people's bodies in which they want it to stop, which hopefully then they think about wanting to stop it in real life. We all wanted to uh, show global warming in a different way rather than a scientific way, right? So bring it to the arts, bring it to the body, bring it from the heart, from the land. You know, I don't know at what point, but at a certain point, I've just become desensitized. And seeing those numbers and seeing those statistics and, and those facts just don't carry any um, weight anymore. Like, I, I see it and I, I know logically that it's bad. But then there's no, there's nothing really that hits in me unless it's so severe because at this point, like, everything that I, I hear about the climate change and, and learn about the climate change is the same is that same sort of format and i think art is like going forward as well is going to continue to be such an important way to break out of that narrative around climate change because i i feel like so many people to um sort of shut themselves away from really going deep into into how bad climate change is and how important it is that we we take action to to slow it down and, and um, do everything that we can to repair what we've done so far because any way that you try to engage with it, it's it's usually through those facts and through those like very, you know, practical like means. Um, and of course, like practical solutions is, is so important in climate change, but I think equally as important is to, is to get climate change, is, is to make climate change something that really hits like hits home I guess is is something that people can really connect to and and I think that is going to be a really important step in making climate change important in people's minds and and in this sort of dialogue around socially around what where we need to go as people and where we need to go as societies I really do question you know, what can art say about climate change? Like, what is it? And I think, first of all, it's always about narratives. Um, what stories you tell about a certain thing really shapes the way people react to it. So 
if we only get one type of story about climate change is that this, you know, there's nature and she's in peril and so she and we need we need to save her and uh, we need to save her in these certain ways and we need to use science to do this, 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 this. And then it's like, okay. And then, but if it doesn't really connect with your life, you don't see the connection and then you don't do anything with it. And science itself is telling a story of, uh, of climate change. And I mean, that's not the only story that's out there. I just want to say, just think more dynamically. Like, just art is also about experience, I think. And I think that for me is the most central thing. So it's not just, um, it's not just a naturalistic, like a very traditional kind of traditional Western theatre where you, where audience sits on one side and the play happens on that side. And it's like, oh, I am telling you this thing. And um, it's like, okay, that's one way to go about it, sure. But what else? You know, like, like what else? Like. You can use your brains, you have them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so I guess that's... I have more questions about that issue than I have answers. As someone who is going to inherit all of this, as part of a huge generation of people who are going to inherit all these problems and who already have, it's, it's sometimes just very overwhelming to, if you want to think about it in such a huge term. But I think what's also important is not to let it overwhelm you and not to just say like, screw it, you know, we're just going to party till <laughs> whenever the world ends. Um, because, because you want to avoid dealing with the problem. I think it's more it's it's more of a it's more of a perpetual shadow on whatever optimism you already have. So I mean it doesn't necessarily diminish, you know, everyday events like, oh you have an ice cream, you know, mum buys you an ice cream, you know, that that's it's not like climate change is in, in the background of my head. But it is it is when you sort of think about the future, it's like a it's it's a small comments. It's like a small comment in the future. You know, it's like oh, we talk about friends, and then you're like, and then someone says, oh, I don't know what to do, and then it's oh, we might we might die anyway. You know, and and that's not just like one person. That's just that's across the board. It 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 into like in, in into a creature that's just in our imagination. Um, whether it becomes a joke, whether it becomes something a serious topic, whether it's something that. Um, forces our peers into into reflection about their futures. I, I've been thinking recently about like whether I want to have kids. Growing up, I was so not interested in having kids. And I was like, I never want to be a parent. I don't want to have a kid. I don't want to, you know, get pregnant and give birth and like then raise a child. Like I was just so uninterested in all of that and unmotivated to really pursue any of that. But um now that you know i've been together with my partner for a while and i think meeting her was the first time that i sort of realized like oh this is why people want to have kids with someone like there you know there's something like when that love is there there's like just something so powerful about like you know you love someone so much that you want to you want to you know create a manifestation of that and 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 like you it's it's almost like inconceivable that you're going to be able to love another person as much as you love this other person that you want to have a kid with. 
but for the time being at least we've arrived on this agreement that like the world is just looking too bad the world is looking too too you know it it it's going in a direction and so rapidly so that we're just not comfortable having a child if it wasn't this kind of world like i think she and i would definitely plan to have a child and sometimes i i feel that's so unfair but i think but it's also what it is and i think that also ties into like to this feeling of um anger and i guess betrayal too that i i would imagine a lot of generation hot feels about the situation that we are now growing up in and that we are becoming young adults in and that we are have been placed in by by the older generations and we're the ones in this generation to directly feel that fire and to 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 really see the world change before our eyes through the rehearsals that we were doing um I guess is when most of the motion came. It was uh, because Saving Mother was so related to me as an indigenous woman and um, the violence that um, society, that Canadian society tries to put on me, but also thinking about my daughter and my son, but also my cast members and trying to like, even though we're going into this really dark space in which this violence occurs um that they're that they were able to to hold that in a in a good way so that it doesn't um hurt them Yeah, I do feel angry quite often, and I don't express it in in ways in which society thinks I should. And I think it's really important to be angry. Um, and a lot of Indigenous people are angry. And a lot of my anger is... I like to think of it um, as an arrow. As cliche as it, that sounds. <laughs> um, and like being able to have my bow and point the anger into a specific area and release it so that it hits it right on the mark. Being able to direct that anger in a way uh, which is constructive and uh, to a point where we can go to where we need to be rather than being angry and stuck where we are. one thing that um, collectively we could all uh, work on together as humans is remembering that if we care for the land, the land will care for us. And we can think scientifically about these things, but science doesn't 
science doesn't allow us that connection. Science in its in in Western science, it's all about breaking things down, which is exactly what the colonizers did. They broke everything down. They broke everything up. So, by bringing our hearts into it, bringing our bodies into it, it allows us to remember those connections, to go back to where we first began, which is on the land. There were so many approaches, so many different approaches to creating a theater piece about climate change. And, you know, some they they some humanized the the facts and and such in in very different ways there were some that took on a very comedic approach some that took on a very uh, immersive and very fun approach if anything i think the message is that we need more like this we need more opportunities for people of generation hot of this generation to create work, create theater, create art that specifically amplifies our, our voices about our experiences in this catastrophe. One of my favorite lines from the Generation Hot pieces was, uh, was a scene between a grandmother and and a, a, a granddaughter, and and the grandmother goes like, goes, don't worry, don't worry, dear. Like you know, the world's end all the time, and the granddaughter is saying, but this is my world. folks amazing. It was totally a joy to get to meet them and I hope that you enjoyed getting to meet them in your own way through this episode, which was episode five. We've made it this far, which feels kind of amazing. I have to say the first few episodes of Big Bright Dark were kind of a proof of concept, but we've gotten some really amazing feedback and we're hearing from people that this podcast is really speaking to you in a way that feels needed and important at this time and really adds a lot of value. So we'd love to be able to share the voices and the ideas and some of the kind of existential crisis camaraderie with a wider audience. So this is where you come in. I have a job for you that only you can do. Will you right now think of three or four or five people who you think would get some meaning or sense of connection out of these episodes? And will you send them a link to the podcast right now? You can also follow us on Stitcher or iTunes where you can write a comment or you can rate the podcast. This also helps us connect with more people. And you can go to bigbrightdark.org where you can sign up for a newsletter to receive updates about our next and upcoming episodes. That's where you can also get in touch with us with feedback or episode ideas. We would love to hear from you. We're shaping this as we go and your input really means a lot.
So on behalf of Gianna, Heather, Christina, Justine, and myself, I want to thank you immensely, and let's continue to create together. Our original theme music is composed and performed by Mark Beattie. That our music in this episode comes to us courtesy of the artists Good Old Neon, Scott Holmes, and the Hathaway Family Project. Big Bright Dark is produced on the traditional unceded territory of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam people. We're so glad that you joined us for this episode, and we look forward to being with you next time.